Let's look to the Word of the Lord now. If you have a Bible, please open up to John chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 40 and we're going to go over into chapter 8. And so please feel free to open up to that. Remember, if you have no idea where the Gospel of John is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. There's a pew Bible there, hopefully in front of you. And you can go to the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will be in John's Gospel. Look for the big number 7. That's the chapter we're going to be in. Look for the little number 40. That's the verse we're going to start in. And I'll remind you again, as we look at the Gospel accounts, the way the Bible works, the Old Testament says somebody's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say somebody's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. And so as we're in the Gospel account of John, we are reading the life and work and words of ministry, uh, the ministry of Jesus, as the portion of Scripture says someone's here right now. And who is that someone? It is the promised Messiah, Jesus himself. And so as you're turning there, looking at John chapter 7, we're just going verse by verse by verse through this great gospel account. It's going to take us until uh, Resurrection Easter Sunday next year. Uh, So we've got a long way to go, but a rich, rich study that I have thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, It's been good for my heart, and I hope and pray it has been for yours as well. As you're opening up there, I want to tell you uh, about, I've mentioned before that The Shawshank Redemption is my favorite movie. Also one of the greatest movies ever made, in my humble opinion. I try not to bring it up in sermon illustrations too often, but every now and then I can't help myself. It's one of those movies that uh, it could be raining outside and I'm flipping through the channels and there might only be 10 minutes left, but I'm still going to stop and watch it till the end. It's just my favorite movie. It's a great movie. And as I was thinking about this passage this morning, I kept going back to the main character, Andy Dufresne. Uh, being locked up in the hole for solitary confinement. You know, he is in Shawshank Prison. And Andy got thrown into the hole for a month for calling the warden obtuse because he didn't want to help him find the actual killer of his wife after young Tommy said that he knew the man that had actually committed and bragged about the murders, proving that Andy was framed for the crimes. And so he goes to the warden and says, Hey, I have this new information. And the warden doesn't want to hear it at all. And the reason he doesn't want to hear it is the warden was using Andy to embezzle money. He kind of had Andy under his thumb. And he didn't want to have anything happen to where it would bring to light his evil scheme. And so he kept Andy under his thumb. And he could, remember Andy calls him obtuse and he takes that personally. And he throws him into a month of solitary confinement in the hole. Then after a month, you have this scene where the warden comes to Andy, and to really show him who runs the show at Shawshank, Warden Norton gives him another month to think about it in the hole. Something that was absolutely unheard of, because we all know and we're told in the movie, there's no easy time when you're serving that time in the hole in solitary confinement. Two months straight in solitary confinement. And I bet I've seen that movie at least 50 times, if not more, probably way more than that. And I've seen that scene a million times. And I'm always taken back by how when the door opens to the, after that first month, how Andy recoils from the light. He's been in the darkness for so long, the, the door opens up and this light comes in and he just instinctively goes away from it and pulls away from it and, and tries to pull up in the corner. And the evil warden steps into the doorway and starts talking. And so Andy has this visceral reaction, this instinctive reaction to the light piercing the darkness of his cell. And he instinctively pulls away from it and he tries to hide from it. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. I want you to just have that thought in your mind of this guy recoiling from the light. 
And the section of John that we're in, chapters 7 and 8, takes place against the backdrop of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles and Booths. It was a week-long festival that focused on God's provision throughout the harvest season where Jews would travel to Jerusalem and they would live in these small makeshift tents in the Hebrew Sukkot, these tents that they would live in for a week. So it's been also called the Feast of Sukkot. And it was a time of joy and thanksgiving that had past, present, and future implications to it, remembering how God had been faithful in the past, thanking God for His present faithfulness and provision, and then asking and looking to future provision for God for His faithfulness. And it was a great time of joy. And you had the last day of the festival that we looked at two weeks ago called the Great Day where the priest would gather water from the pool of Siloam. Remember, they would process down from the temple and they would take this golden pitcher and dip up some of the water from the well from the pool of Siloam. It was fed by a spring, and so as it was constantly churned up, it was also referred to as living water. And they would take this water and they would process it back up to the temple and they would march around the altar and they would pour the water out. And on the last day, the great day of the feast, they would actually come, process around the altar seven times, and then pour the water out. And so it was a a reminder of God providing water from the rock in the wilderness. And this was a very solemn moment in the festival proceedings. And it it was considered a great honor to be able to be there and witness the water being poured out. I was trying to think of maybe what a, an, a, an analog would be for us that we could kind of kind of catch the solemnity of the moment. I don't know if any of y'all have ever been to Washington, D.C. And, and been and seen the changing of the guard at Arlington National Cemetery where you go, and it is just this solemn, quiet moment. You were actually asked by the tomb guard. One of our friends in Virginia actually was a part of this really elite corps. He was a tomb guard for years. And just going and hearing all of the behind-the-scenes kind of stuff of what he had to do is amazing. As you know, the sentinel will come and they do a changing of the guard. And every single thing is there for a reason and on purpose, but it's a very quiet, solemn moment. And if you've been there, you can remember hearing the steps of the soldier and then hearing that click of their boots click together. You might have 100 people there, more, and everybody, it's like you can hear a pin drop. That's kind of what this moment was. As the pitcher is lifted high, the hush would fall over the assembly. And at that great and solemn moment, Jesus cried out in verse 37 of John chapter 7. He cries out into this moment, Uh, where he says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus breaks that silence and says, Look, this all points to me. As you can imagine, this led to even more division about the identity and origins of Jesus. We see that in verses 40 to 53. And this also led the Pharisees, who were still trying to kill Jesus, to use a woman as human bait, which, I mean, think about that. What an appalling thing. These are the the temple leaders. These are the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are bringing a woman and using her as human bait to try to trap Jesus. What an appalling thing. Such was their contempt and hatred for Jesus that they would do that. And they're trying to trap him. And we see that in verses 1 through 11. And look at verse 6 of chapter 8. Says this, this they said to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And we're thinking about this in the scene that's going on. Here's what the Reformation Study Bible said in the footnote about this. He said, if Jesus told them to carry out the stoning, he would violate the Roman law by which the Romans reserved to themselves the execution of the death penalty in occupied lands. If Jesus told them to release the woman, he would appear to condone adultery and violate the law of Moses. And so they bring this woman to Jesus to try to trap him and say, she's been caught in adultery, what should we do? Should we stone her or should we let her go? And they're trying to trap him. But Jesus knew their hearts and he pointed to their hypocrisy. And at first he pretended not to hear them, but then he spoke. And in verse 7, he said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And it's an interesting comment that I read on this account suggests that Jesus may have been writing words referring to the hidden sins of the Pharisees on the ground as they accused this woman. He may have written down, you know, embezzler or thief or adulterer, you know, that he may have been writing these words down and the Pharisees could see as, and be reminded that Jesus knew their heart. We don't know this for, for sure. We don't know this for certain. But I thought it was an interesting comment on this passage of what Jesus may have been doing as he was writing on the ground. And you may also see this portion of text is bracketed in your Bible. If you have a King James, it does not have it bracketed because these verses are not found in the earliest Greek manuscripts of John. You might see that bracket there. And here's what Ligonier, an article I read um, that, that talked about this particular passage that I thought was helpful, said, However, we must note that whether John actually recorded this story is up for debate. Most biblical scholars do not believe this is a Johannine text because it's not found in many of the oldest New Testament manuscripts. Moreover, the manuscripts that do not have the story do not all agree on where it should be placed. Some manuscripts have it in other places in John, while some even have it in the Gospel of Luke. Nevertheless, it's an ancient story referenced in several of the earliest church fathers, and the church has long held that it records an authentic episode from the life of Christ. Thus, we agree with John Calvin that since the passage, quote, contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage, unquote. Now, what I really want to focus on this morning is the passage from verse 12 in chapter 8 to 20 where Christ claims to be the light of the world. That's what I really want to hone in on. Just like two weeks ago, we see Jesus saying, I am the river, I am the water, come to me and drink, that's me. Now, he says, I am the light of the world. And just as we just sang in this song, that song actually patterns this chapter. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I'm the living water, and then that third stanza, I am the dark world's light. And so I want to lay these two next to you. So let's focus in on verse 12 as we start here this morning. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I am come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour 
had not yet come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to this text. Pray, pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need you, O Lord. We need a voice from outside of ourselves. And so, please come and speak to our hearts. Remind us of all that is true. Redescribe reality to us, O Lord. And prepare our hearts even now as we sit under your preached word to take your supper here in just a moment. These things we humbly ask and pray these in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the big question we're asking this morning is, why should we care about Jesus' claim to be the light of the world? He says, I'm the light of the world. The big question is, so what? Why should I care? Our two points this morning, if you're a note-taking person, are going to be this. Why should we care? Number one, we care, we should care, because his claims are life-changing. The second reason that we should care about his claim is that his authority is all-powerful. So let's look at that first point as we ask the question, why should we care about Jesus' claim to be the light of the world? Number one, we're going to see that his claims are life-changing. And when we think about this, I want you to think about how darkness is typically used in movies and TVs and, and TV shows and stuff like that. It's typically associated with evil and fear, right? You know, you see the scary movie where they open up and there's like the dark you know, passage that goes to the basement, or there's like the dark, creepy cave, and you don't really know what's in there. You have the dark side of the force in the Star Wars movies. You know, you, you have all of these, uh, even the phrase being left in the dark, you may be familiar with that phrase. It's you're unable to access basic facts. It feels like you're being left out. There feels like there's something that other people know that you don't know. There's this feeling of, I don't really know what's coming around the corner. And when the Bible speaks of darkness, though, it refers to spiritual darkness. It refers to spiritual blindness and hostility towards God and anything associated with Him. It is this hostility. That's what the Bible talks about when it says darkness. Spiritual darkness and rebellion and opposition against not only God, but anything associated with Him. Isaiah 9 speaks of the world groping around in darkness. Romans chapter 12, verse, or Romans chapter 1, excuse me, verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the true state of the fallen world in which we live. It is cloaked in spiritual darkness. And the Bible is very clear about that, Old Testament and New Testament. And so you think on the evening of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, let me take you back again to what's going on in the text, the Feast of Tabernacles, another important ceremony was held. This ceremony was the illumination of the temple. What it did was it pointed to the pillar of fire that led the people in the Exodus and referred to this Shekinah glory, this divine, visible manifestation of God as he led the people in the wilderness. So just as the, the ceremony with pouring out the water pointed to God providing water from the rock in the wilderness in the Exodus, now this refers to and points to God leading his people in the midst of the Exodus and always being there with them. And so what happened in this time is these four huge tall torches were erected in the temple treasury. Verse 20 tells us that Jesus is speaking these words from the temple treasury. And they would, uh, they would erect these huge uh, candelabras, these torches, and each one of them held about 18 gallons of oil. And so what they would do is they would get the young, healthy priest to climb these big tall ladders and tote the oil up and pour and fill the lamps up. And then what they would do in the evening is they would light these lamps. And as one historian said, every courtyard in Jerusalem would be filled with light. 
So remember, you have the temple that was on the Temple Mount, the highest point in the land, and then you take these torches that are even taller than that and light them all, these big, bright torches, and they said every courtyard in Jerusalem would be lit. It's similar to when you ever been to, you may have come here or grown, grown up doing this, the candlelight service on, on um, Christmas Eve. You know, we all light the, the candles and we keep them down in front of us. And then at the very end, what do we do? We lift them high, right? And as we lift the candles high, the light goes and spreads out. Now imagine that times a billion. <laughs> That's what's going on on the last great day of this feast with the illumination of the temple. And so just as Jesus claimed to be the true rock and the true spring and I'm the living water, he now points to the torches high in the temple and he says, that's me. That's me. I'm the one who protected you. I'm the one who guided you in the wilderness. I'm the one who enveloped the tabernacle. I was the one who filled Solomon's temple with glory. Those point to me as a member of the triune Godhead. That's me. Now you think, here's what Kent Hughes said in his commentary about Jesus' claim here. He says, what a statement, exclamation point, right? Here Jesus was claiming to be God. His conscious identification with the pillar of fire reveals something about his incarnation. Within the cloud that led Israel through the wilderness, there was always a heart of fire that shone forth at night but was sheathed by day. When our Lord came, he sheathed his glory in flesh so that we could look upon him. Remember, we started way back when, at the beginning of John, in John's prologue. Here's what verse 14 says from chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, the Hebrew or the Greek word there, tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory of as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so you think, okay, why should I care? This is what makes Christianity unique on the stage of world religions. Every other world religion tells you that God cannot be approached. God cannot be understood, and so you need to work hard to perfect yourself so that one day, maybe, you might be found good enough to be in His presence. And this is exactly where Satan wants you. For you to remain in darkness, slaving away to foolishly try to accumulate enough good works to save yourself and missing Jesus in the entire process. Satan wants you to focus on you and what you are doing to make yourself worthy, to make you think that you could never be good enough to be in God's presence. Slaving away, working away. Here's what makes Christianity different. And this is why it's good news. Christianity tells you that you aren't and never will be good enough to be in the presence of a holy God on your own. That's the bad news. But the good news is God comes down to you and does everything for you and opens up a way for you. It's not God hiding and being far off and aloof and saying, I hope you can figure it out. And I hope you can work hard to hopefully maybe one day be there. No, no, no. Christianity is different because it says, no, God comes to you. And I'm going to do it for you. And I'm going to provide for you. How does he do this? He pierces the spiritual darkness with the light of his glory and drags you out of the hole of your sin. And shame so that you can walk in his glorious light and finally make sense of your world and have a true and lasting hope. He is the light when all other lights go out. To quote Tolkien. Here's what Tim Keller said. This great salvation, this light that flashes upon you with all its new life, truth, and beauty comes as a gift. The only way you can receive it is to admit that it's an undeserved grace. The light of Christ pierces the darkness of our hearts, but it also equips us. He has not left us to figure out life on our own. Psalm, 19, Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet 
and a light to my path. John chapter 16, verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you in all the truth. Many of you this morning are still stumbling around in the dark trying to do it yourself. The world is perfectly content with you trying to be your own light because it knows that you're going to end up worn out, discouraged, and ultimately alone. Many of you in this room are trying to make it all happen on your own, and you're trying to be your own light because you just can't admit that you can't do it. The gospel calls you to quit trying to save yourself. The gospel calls you to look to the light, the true light. Look to Jesus and live. Jesus calls us all to live in community with others in a local church, His bride. And to be encouraged with the Word and to abide in Him, to dwell in the light of His grace. And we do it together. Here again is what Kent Hughes said, When Jesus is loved and followed and trusted, He becomes light. But when He is neglected, darkness descends. Having the light of Christ is the ultimate necessity of life. No concern is more urgent than that. Without it, we will walk into eternal darkness. What we are called to do is we're called to look to Jesus because He is the light of the world. We are called to get off the treadmill of our own works and trying to be a light in and of ourselves. You can go and buy a million self-help books that basically talk about you being your own light. And you can do it. You just need to work hard. And what ends up happening is you read those books or you follow along with that and then you realize very quickly that you can't. So now what? Now what do you do? Christianity calls you to leave all of that behind and to look to Jesus and to trust in what He has done for you and to rest in that. That's the good news of the gospel. It doesn't offer you a treadmill. It offers you a Savior, a Redeemer, a one who can actually do it. That's the amazing thing about this when we think about the richness of the gospel. It says, you can't do it. You're spiritually dead. I'm going to come and do it for you. I'm going to renew you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to carry you until the very end. I'm going to do it, God says. It's amazing when you think about it. And the ultimate question before us all this morning is, are you walking in this light? Do you know Christ? What is the condition? Jesus says, whoever follows me. What is the promise associated with that? We'll not walk in darkness anymore, but we'll have the light of life. We'll have it. We'll have it. I will give it to you. You will possess it. Not trying to figure it out. You will have the light of life for those who follow me. Ephesians 5, verse 8. For at at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 1 John 1, 5-7. This is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. That's good news, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is so life-changing because it means that someone has broken through that darkness and found you. Found you. And it means that we have hope and good news. But claiming it, Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. Claiming it and proving it are two totally different things. That's our second point. His authority is all-powerful. His claims are life-changing. They're life-changing in the sense of what it means is you can get off the treadmill and trust in Christ and quit trying to be a light unto yourself. You can't do it. 
And it reminds you, Christianity says, I found you in your spiritual darkness and your death. I found you. My, the light of the gospel has pierced through the darkness and I've found you. I've searched you out and I've found you. It's life-changing. But claiming it and proving it are two totally different things. That's our second point. That his authority is all-powerful. This one's going to be shorter than the first. Verse 13. Look at how the Pharisees respond with such hard-heartedness. So, so the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. They say, Prove it. They claim that Jesus' testimony is not legally valid because it lacks another witness. Now remember, this isn't the first time Jesus has defended his ministry and his divinity with this group. They had the works that he was doing, these miracles that he had publicly performed, and the words from the Old Testament scriptures that spoke of him and he applied to their situation. The evidence was all right there. Ketty said in his commentary, the problem's not evidence, but a heart of unbelief that is determined to deny truth. That's what Romans 1 talks about. Sproul talked about this when he went and spoke at the Atheist Club. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Where he said, he said, to this room of atheists, he said, the problem is not that you deny God. The problem is that you hate the one that you know is there. And you refuse to admit that he's there. So the, evidence, the lack of evidence to Jesus' divinity and his claims is undeniable. The problem is our hearts. Look at verse 17 and 18, where the Lord responds with two witnesses, himself and his Father. He mentions your law. And again, Jesus is pointing to the law that they held others to, but only kept themselves when it suited them. And they ask where his Father is. They're like, where's your father? Remember, they're still in the temple. He's saying this in the treasury of the temple. They are in the temple right now. And he says, where is your father? And look at the stinging rebuke that Jesus gives them in verse 19. Jesus says, they said, and they said to him, therefore, where's your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. For if you knew me, you would know my father also. What they knew was religion. What they lacked was a relationship with God. What they clung to was rules. And what they needed was a Savior. And that's what we need too. We need a Savior. Again, this is where Christianity stands out. The Bible is brutally honest about the state of our hearts apart from Christ and the depths of our rebellion against our Creator. The Bible is brutally honest about that. And if you really want to know what the secret to church growth is, don't talk about sin. Don't say the hard stuff. You can grow a massive church and never talk about the hard stuff, but you'd be unfaithful to the Scripture. The Scripture is brutally honest about how, where we stand before a holy God and the depth of our rebellion. John three nineteen, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's every single one of us in this room apart from Christ. But instead of leaving us in our darkness and rebellion, Jesus entered into that darkness, took the darkness of God's judgment upon himself, spent three days in the darkness of the tomb, and rose victorious over the darkness so that we could be brought into his light by sheer grace and mercy. Sheer grace and mercy. How do we know that it, this all exists? How do we know that it's true? What reminder can we have to really know that God has done this? Ladies and gentlemen, it's a supper set before you. 
as Jesus entered into that darkness, took the wrath that you and I deserved upon himself, died and was placed in a dark tomb so that he could rise again and we could be risen with him and united with him. How do we really know that this is true? It's right here. The gospel set before us to be reminded of all that he has done to rescue and redeem his people from their darkness. And so what do we do? He calls us to follow him and to reflect his light into this dark world around us. And as we feel the darkness deepening, we even sing this song, Andrew Peterson, do you feel the darkness deepen? We do. Even as we feel that, we hold the light of Christ even higher and we do it together as a church and as a family. Philippians 2, 14-16, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Almost done. As we continue to toil and struggle in this world surrounded by spiritual darkness, and we may feel that darkness, it may feel like it's encroaching day by day, let us look forward to the vision that the Apostle John was given in exile on Patmos as we continue to hold out the light of the gospel in the midst of this broken and dark world. Here's this vision. You know the vision that John saw? I mean, in exile on Patmos. Here's what he saw. Revelation 21, 22 to 25. The last few verses of the Bible. And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What is the future? Jesus himself is the lamp in the middle of the city of God. And it is a safe place with no shadows, no scary night, only light. Because as theologians call it, the effulgence of divine splendor. The holiness and brightness of God. Remember Moses was with God? And he came down and had to wear a veil over his face. Even that reflection was too much. And we think about that as the future vision. Jesus says, I'm that light. Follow me. And trust me. And look to me. And how do we know that it's true? Because he broke through the darkness. And he found us. And he sought us out. When we were locked in sin and death. And he's brought us into his glorious light. So I think Hank Williams was not quite right when he said, I, f I found the light or I saw the light. No. The light came to him. The light comes to us. Because we don't want the light. But we need it. And so the Lord has come and made it all work. And we say praise be to God. Alright, in the midst of a second world war that was marked by such spiritual darkness and death and fear, a man in London delivered a series of sermons to speak hope and courage in a time of great doubt and darkness. And you think about as the Nazis and Hitler was invading country after country, do you not feel like the darkness was deepening and encroaching each and every day as the bombs were falling all around you? And this man spoke into the midst of that time of darkness to offer hope and encouragement. As people were asking, has God lost sight of his people in the fog of war? 
Will the darkness continue to spread unabated? Will our world always be covered with war and suffering and death? Where do I turn for hope? Where do I turn for answers in the midst of this? That man was C.S. Lewis. And he delivered a set of sermons now written in the book, The Weight of Glory, which I highly recommend to you. And here's what he said. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Where do we find hope in the midst of a dark and broken world? We find it in Jesus because through Him, it, it makes everything else make sense. Because by this, we see and it makes sense of our world. And what we are given a picture of is one of hope and one of a steadfast, faithful God who draws broken, rebellious people to Himself and said, I have found you, and I have sought you out, and you are now mine, and I have secured it. I have secured that salvation for you. And you can look and remember all that He has done for you. It's right there. We're so quick to forget. We're so quick to make it about ourselves. And yet we remember, praise be to Christ for all He has done. It's not sola mio gloria, it's sola deo gloria. To God alone be the glory for all that He has done. And we rejoice that He would ever, you ask the question, why in the world, O oh Lord, would you ever shine the light of your gospel upon me? It's not, oh, I deserve it. It's why, O oh Lord, would you ever do that? But praise be to God that He has. Because we have seen the light because He's shown it to us. And He is the light of the world. And so we don't hold up ourselves, we hold up Christ, and we do it together, each one of us like a little candle, as we raise it up high with other churches in our area, other churches around the world. We're not the only candles, thank God for that. But we hold up Christ together, and we shine the light of the gospel into this broken and dying world, and we call others to look to the light. That's what we do, and we do it together, because God has done it for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us, O oh Lord, as we think, why in the world would you ever be this kind? Why in the world would you ever show your light to us? We are thankful that you have. And Lord, we praise you for your marvelous grace. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you that you are the light of the world. And Father, as we approach this table this morning, we ask and pray that you would remind us of all that you have done as you sought us out, you have secured us, and you keep us and secure us forever. Lord, what a, what a glorious promise. What a thing to be reminded of. And we're thankful that every bit of it's true. Thank you, O oh Lord. Forgive us for the ways that we have tried to rob you of your glory and tried to keep some of it for ourselves. Forgive us. And Father, help us to remember that all we have and all that we know is because of you. We love because you first loved us. What a glorious promise. So we ask and pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.